Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We love a good entrepreneurial story on the EIS Navigator, and today we have a great one for you. Jasper Smith is a serial entrepreneur and a serial funder. We talk about his story and how it's shaped his investment philosophy. We also touch on mental health, something that often gets pushed into the background for founders and managers. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we're joined by Jasper Smith, who is chairman and founder of Valor Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Jasper. Oh, thanks very much. Great to be here, Brian. Our pleasure. So as usual, we'd like to start by finding out a bit more about you. So can you perhaps briefly tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? That's a very long story. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess it was the logical conclusion after a long career of being an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, you know, myself and a few others just felt that we could we could act as a fund manager in a way that was sympathetic to the needs of an entrepreneur and in in, in support of uh, an investor's requirement to make a, a capital return and you know and that that's gone really well so i think you know it was it was a an alchemy of lots of different things coming together okay well we'll we'll dig a bit more, more inside in a minute but it would also be helpful maybe you could give us an idea of what Valor capital actually does sure so it, it's an entrepreneur-led vc our aim is to build a, a major European VC over time, and these things do obviously take time. And you know, we work with some of the best founders in in the UK to help them build and incubate great businesses. And we provide capital, obviously, to them. But we provide a lot of mentoring and business support. During COVID, for instance, we've provided a lot of behavioural science support around, you know, how to cope with uh-huh. with lack of hierarchy and no central office and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, we really go to work on trying to provide all the infrastructure that new startup companies require. And, uh, you know, I think that really sets us apart. So, you know, we don't see ourselves as fund managers first. We see ourselves as entrepreneurs that have been through the ringer a few times. We've had our fair share of failures and, and a few successes along the way, thankfully. But I think we have a deep insight into you know, what the chemistry of a founder is and and what the road looks like for them. And it can be an extremely lonely place being a founder, you know, when when you can't meet payroll and your product's not right and the marketing's not going the way you want it to go, you know, it can feel pretty challenging. You know, you generally can't go home and talk about it to to your wife or your partner. So it's a lonely place. And so building building a VC that understands that journey profoundly and has empathy with the journey of an entrepreneur, I think is is quite a rare thing. And marrying that with being the custodian and manager of investor funds, I think gives us a really interesting bridge. You know, so far it's gone it's gone fantastically well and, and you know the entrepreneurs that we work with seem to love it. Like any VC, we'd like lots more lots more exits, but mm-hmm. they you know, we've had a few and they're coming and it, it, it's it's looking pretty good. Yeah, for, for the age that Valor is, you wouldn't really expect you to have a deep track record yet. I think that's fair. We're all sort of, you know, very ambitious for what we can do. And so, you know, we're we're always looking at it saying, well, we could do more or we could, you know, could be faster. I think as a team behind Valor, we've got 
you know, really strong track records. And we've invested in 50, 60 different companies. We've we've exited, you know, the vast majority of those, some for value, some not. But between the founders of the business, we've got a really strong track record and a, and a very long history of working together. We've delivered really good gains for the people that have backed us outside of Vala, obviously, mm-hmm. because we haven't had any any true exits through Vala yet. I think it, yeah, it does. It does take time, and and you know we're very committed to the cause. And you know, I think if you look at the marketplace now, you know we're we're going through an industrial revolution, another industrial revolution, and, and this sort of transition through to renewables and sustainable and sustainability companies is 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 a really profound one. And it, it it's probably as Mark Carney was saying, words to the effect of you know fortunes will be made in these in this mm-hmm. transition and you know where where there's chaos or where there's profound change there's there's extraordinary opportunity so i couldn't think actually of a better time to have the experience that i've got the, you know the infrastructure that we've got as vala and the opportunities that we've got so you know you join all those dots notwithstanding the you know the chaos and the tragedy of of covid you know i think it's an extremely an extremely exciting and motivating time to be either an entrepreneur or an investor and so, so to be the bridge in the middle is a really mm-hmm. a really exciting place to be yeah yeah um interesting times can be exciting times but you touched on the fact you've got experience so i thought it would be good to perhaps dig into that experience a little bit and talk about your entrepreneurial experiences a little bit then perhaps see how these feed a bit more into your fund management sort of perspective now so can we go right back in time can you tell us well i'm saying right back you're not that old um (laughs) i'll give you a tenner for that later thank you (laughs) what was the first business you founded so the first first business i had was a company called translocation and i was 18 i think and it was at a time when sky was an idea in Murdoch's eye and mm-hmm. translocation set out to help organizations like Sky demonstrate their products and, and uh, Sky was a very complex product to demonstrate to people because you needed a satellite dish and a telly and none of the retailers wanted to stock Sky because it was, mm-hmm. you know, at that time, they, you know, Sky was the sort of, you know, the anti-establishment player. Mm-hmm. And, and so we created these outside vehicle, these outside sort of um, demonstration vehicles that could be parked in train stations and things. And they had, <laughs> they were ridiculous. They were like transit vans with a tele- telescopic mast on with a satellite dish mm-hmm. and inside racks of TVs and seats. And so you could sort of send this mast up 50 feet in the air, try and find the satellite, tune it, then put Sky TV on all these, on all these uh, TVs. Yeah, we were very lucky, you know, Sky Sky loved them and we ended up selling a lot of them and I ended up actually working a lot at Sky, mm-hmm. helping them helping them get the first 250,000 subscribers, which became sort of critical for their their battle against uh, BSB. You mm. might remember they, they ended up... The Squareal. <clears throat> the Squareal. I pitched the same trucks, right, to, to mm-hmm. BSB and they were like, no, we won't have them. You know, don't, don't worry about it. And we went, we were pitched it to Sky and Sky were like, we want these immediately. And they were so successful. Like I said, you know, we sold 
something like 200,000 systems via this process, mm-hmm. which at the dawn of satellite TV in the UK was was the game changer number. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, it gave them critical mass. So where did that idea actually come from? Because that's, you know, for an 18-year-old, that sounds quite a big step to take. Yeah, so I, I had been, I'd always wanted to be a, a sculptor, but I was totally useless. But I'd learned to be a welder to be a sculptor and mm-hmm. I was an awesome welder. So I was working in a garage, welding up old cars, minis and stuff like that. And then this guy came in in a Ferrari and he said, he said, could you weld up the floor pan on this Ferrari? I was like, oh, I don't think I'll better do that. You know, I've never worked on a Ferrari and all this stuff. I was like, <laughs> no, no, it's fine, going good. So I did it. I obviously did an okay job. And he came back the next day with a Aston Martin um, Vantage and said, you know, could I, do the rear floor pan i think it was in that one and i did that and then about a week later he rocked up in this ash uh alfa romeo montreal which was this big v8 very rare car and i was like where's this guy getting all these cars and i started talking to him and he he was the guy that murdoch had hired to help build sky and i didn't know this at the time but he started talking about the problems of setting up a, a completely new pay TV platform in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just through discussions with him. And I was like, well, you know, we've got a, we've got a workshop. I sort of know the problem. I was a bit techie anyway. So we just sort of cobbled a demo together in an old van we had mm. and yeah, went from there. So that was my, that was my first business. It was short lived, but it was a great business. <laughs> yeah. Where, where did the funding come from for that? I mean, if you're a, a, a young guy working a garage, presumably you didn't have a lot of money behind you. No, I had no money at the time. So the, the demo cost us probably, I don't know, 800 quid or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I found here and there and I, I probably borrowed a load of stuff out of this garage that I was working in and <laughs> the van wasn't my van. It was their van and all this sort of stuff. So we cobbled it together. And then when Sky liked the idea, the deal we did with them, I was very honest with them. I said, look, I've got no money to, do these on spec. So if you want one, you've got to pay for it up front. Mm-hmm. And so they bought one and they were quite, you know, they weren't cheap. I mean, they were, uh, you know, they bought one and then they bought another and they bought another. And then they started ordering them in volume. But it was never a, you know, it was never a big business. It was just a really interesting business where I got in to, you know, a major corporate outfit at a very, very early stage. And it set the tone for a lot of my career because once we had done that, I then joined Sky and helped do, do quite a lot of the sales and market, you know, worked on the sort of sales side. And then I was asked to go and do the same for Norwegian Telecom and Deutsche Telecom and Swiss Telecom and stuff like that. So I spent a long time just going around to pay TV operators, helping them scale satellite systems. And, you know, and that gave me a great foundation for what I wanted to do next, because then I sort of understood tech, I understood media. You know, I understood negotiating contracts and getting deals done. I was quite good at prototyping stuff and uh, or having at least the ideas around doing that sort of stuff. And it gave me a level of confidence that I think I couldn't have earned any other way in a sense. So I didn't go to uni or anything like that. And I learned, you know, pretty much everything I did, you know, just on the on the job. You know, those those early years of having ideas, trying to bring them to life, trying to sell them, having to deliver on them is a, was a really good jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. for, for, for somebody like me. So no, I was, I was extremely fortunate. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sales side, I think, is quite interesting in the sense that it's something a lot of new founders, I think, struggle with if they haven't got the experience of that. And I've and I've heard some people suggest the best advice for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur is, is actually do some selling in whatever way. You know, what's your experience of that? Yeah, I think, first off, I don't think you can have a CEO of any of any business who isn't the number one sales guy. You know, that's that's the job, basically. And and so, yeah, I, I totally agree. Being being an entrepreneur is about being able to sell dreams, ideas and, you know, tangible products once you've built them. But, yeah, sales, I think in everything that we do, our ability to sort of conceive and then present an idea is pretty critical. It's not just for entrepreneurs. I think it's it's one of the skills that I wish schools took far more seriously. It's like if we could, if we could educate our kids to be confident enough to come out of school and and feel that actually you know they could present this idea to a large group of people i think it's such an empowering thing when you it's a real real key to success not not as i said not just for entrepreneurs you know for me the the work i did originally was and then going around with all these you know all these telcos and helping them build these pay tv platforms was a great precursor for coming back to the UK, I was living in Switzerland at the time, coming back to the UK and setting up a business called Playjam. You know, Playjam, you know, it was, it was a tech business that was at the, the very dawn of the casual game space. And what it was trying to do was deliver casual games to TV. And uh-huh. it, it built a, you know, a worldwide network of TV partners to work with and it was the skills that i had learned earlier you know the ability to sell the ability to build prototypes understand the sort of media and tech space and again we went back to our friends at sky we got sky to invest in it and we got casanovas to invest in it and we got bt to invest in it so why did you take the step towards gaming because it's not a, a million miles away but it's it's definitely a change of direction are you a gamer yourself or I, I, I mean, I love games. I do love games. But I wouldn't say I was a gamer, but I, you know, I, I do love it. But I think it, it came about because in Nor in Norwegian Telecom, they had an R and D division that was looking at the second generation. Obviously, in Norway, you had you know Nokia and things like that mm-hmm. coming through. And so, in in Norwegian Telecom's R and D division, they had these rooms of labs with you know these guys in white coats working on what's going to happen next and they showed us all these prototypes of these are you know because phones were like bricks do you remember yeah you know, they were like yeah. massive bricks with big aerials you know mm-hmm. and so it's like the idea of doing anything on them was other than talking was sort of nonsense but they were showing all these sort of devices that they were working on and you know this could be that and this would be this and then they were showing on the set-top boxes the TV uh, tuners, they were showing how that transitions to digital and they put memory in it and a, a GPU and then you can have games on that as well. So they were like 20 years ahead of where the technology was at the time. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, we think, you know, the whole games console market will change profoundly because set-top boxes will become games consoles. So we were like, that's a really interesting idea. Okay, yeah. So we built, based on that, we started building demos and then sky in the uk adopted digital so transition from analog to digital and that box which we had had some early sight of had 
enough memory in it to run games. So we built a games platform to sit in the skybox. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, we took it to every other pay TV network that used the same sort of sort of architectures around the world. And so we, we ended up building this platform that was, you know, in 70 odd million TV households around the world. It became the biggest games platform in the world at the time, you know, mm -hmm. not now. Because yeah. mobile didn't exist at the time. That was an extraordinary buzz. So we had this little factory in Old Street that was producing games and we were like broadcasting them to the world. And it was a real, really maverick, wonderful project that, excuse the pun, changed the game in how the casual games industry grew because, you know, we, we were there as right at the door. And I mean, had we focused on mobile than, rather than TV, mm -hmm. the number that we got at exit would have been very different. So mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> we all made mistakes, but yes. it, it worked super well for us. And we, yeah. we had a good so how was it in having switching direction? Because it sounds like up till then you'd effectively been very TV focused and then you're changing direction into, as I say, it's not a million miles away, but it's definitely a very different area doing a different thing. How easy or hard was that switch? Well, I think it's, it depends where you sit in a chain, doesn't it? And, and I think like many entrepreneurs, you know, you tend to sort of see you're not very good at detail. You tend to look at trends and you look at things at a high level. And so pivots and transitions have never been very difficult for me, you know, mm -hmm. you know, working on sort of food companies and property businesses and tech businesses and all sorts of things. So, you know, we're quite eclectic in how we look at things and the ability to pivot is just based on curiosity, really, isn't mm -hmm. it? Your, your desire to dig and understand. And I love the way Elon Musk looks at stuff. You know, I mean, I, I've never met him, anything like that. So, I, but I, you know, what I've read about his approach is, you know, he takes everything back to first principles. So, mm -hmm. you know, what is the root cause of the fundamental problem you're trying to solve, if there's a problem you're trying to solve at all? And, you know, I like that approach. And I, I, I think, Obviously, we're nowhere close to Elon Musk, but we quite <laughs> like using some no of the techniques. No one is, really, I think. The techniques that he uses. And I think it's like if you see an opportunity, you're like, well, what's the issue with this this industry, this sector, this problem, this machine or, or process or whatever it is? And just work it back. And actually, if you, can, if you work yourself back to the point where you understand what the problem is and you can see a different way of doing it, the great thing about being an entrepreneur is you're a joiner of dots, really. Mm -hmm. That's the magic is just this guy, that woman, this place, this product, that's a great fit. Let's, you know, let's invest in and build that. And I think joining the dots is, you know, as you get older, becomes easier and easier. 18, I had no idea what dots to join. You know, <laughs> I just borrowed a van off the guy who owned the yard. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to think we all get better at that as we get older. It's, it's something I do wonder a little bit about where people talk about you don't need to know stuff because you can find it on Google. And to my mind, the real creativity, as you say, is connecting things. And if you don't have the knowledge, how can you connect it? Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think the other thing that happens when you get older is that you realize you're not the solution yourself to these things. And so as an, uh, you know, when I was 20 years younger, you know, I would try and, uh, you know, 
try and design everything, try and build everything. You know, I, I was probably a complete control freak and a total nightmare to work with. I'm probably still am, but I hope I'm not as bad as I used to. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, as, again, as you as you get older, it's it's much easier to just seed ideas and relinquish control and and be in be far more around empowering people. And there are some extraordinary people. I mean, the, the people that we meet on a monthly basis that are trying to build new technologies or new processes and systems, they're, they're just extraordinary. And, and so I've, I've really enjoyed that transition from having to come up with the ideas and operating businesses to providing capital to the businesses that we think will succeed and then providing all the mentoring and the, you know, the support behind but you know behind that and for an entrepreneur i wish i'd had vcs that provided what we provide like, you know in the old days the vcs that i worked with were very very binary organizations generally not run by people that had much experience in running business uh-huh. but were used to running money i think there's a real zeitgeist partly driven by what's happened in silicon valley with, uh-huh. with you know a to z and and Sequoia and others, you know, which are, have done, done a fantastic job to drive the industry forward. And the UK is a bit behind, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got some great VCs here. But in the, you know, in the startup space, there's still this, you know, valley of death funding gap where, you know, it's relatively easy in the UK to get friends and families to back you as an individual if you've got a great idea. Mm-hmm. Really hard to get that seed capital, you know, beyond friends and family, it's really hard to raise those first few chunks of capital. That's where organizations like Vala can be real drivers of change by really, you know, empowering this new generation of founders with with, with purpose-led capital that's focused on sort of transition technologies and things like that. So, yeah, really, you know, amazing. Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about this funding gap, and I'm hoping to get someone who's done some academic research into this. But why do you think that gap is there? I mean, in the sense, there's lots of capital floating around in the private markets now, but still that gap persists. Yeah, and I I think a few causes to that. So the first is that capital is risk averse, and and you know, capital tends to want to flow to liquid assets with sort of large risk mitigation strategies wrapped around them. So I think there's a, a systemic issue there, certainly in Europe, that would be wonderful to sort of explore in a bit more detail another time. I think the second issue is, is that if, if, if you look at the way most SMEs present themselves, the whole period for an SME is somewhere between three and seven years, I guess. And so for a lot of investors, that feels like quite a long time to be locked into something. And I think that that has often been a really big issue in terms of, like if you're a really good entrepreneur and you're selling the dream really well, seven years doesn't sound too long. But if you're not a great entrepreneur, seven years sounds like a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, a series of these sort of systemic issues. And then the other one is that Companies are staying private for much longer. Mm-hmm. So VCs, you know, are all about capital return. And the best ROI they can get is to go into pre-IPO businesses a year mm-hmm. or two before they're going to go public. Yeah. Let them go public and then hopefully get a big upswing. And it just means that you know, if, if you're a VC and you're out raising a fund, you've got to raise money from other institutions or from individuals. And they're all about 
return you know when's it going to happen and, and it just means that all capital trends towards later stage businesses and if you look at the capital flows it's something like one percent of available capital goes into startups three percent into early stage about seven percent into slightly later stage and then the vast majority goes into much later stage companies that are suitable for PE or mm-hmm. large-scale VC, you know, prior, prior to an IPA. The issue is that without capital going into the startups, there's no accelerator, you know, there's no, there's no lifeblood to give those companies, you know, the next generation of entrepreneurs. And so, you know, the mantra is really about just trying to drag some of the capital from the, the right side, if you like, of, of the pre-IPO side, try and drag that down into the SME sector. It just comes down to the way funds are run and money is raised is all about the ROI and the time frame to get the ROI. Companies staying private longer, pre-IPO market being quite throthy and, and you know, there's been a lot of traction in that sector. Solving the valley of death or the funding gap, be a nicer way of putting it, <laughs> solving that funding gap in the UK is the difference between the UK being an absolute powerhouse of innovation through this next industrial revolution and it not being so you know systems like EIS are, are key but as is encouraging new fund managers to raise new funds that are focused on really early stage yeah I mean the way you phrase it there or talk about it makes me wonder thinking across the US whether that valley of death isn't there in the same way but as you say, their VC culture is, is much more founder or f- former entrepreneur dominated compared to what we've got in the UK. Now, EIS does have a lot of former entrepreneurs, but once you get sort of even, even once into VCs, that's, there's definitely a lot less of those and it's definitely more, more money management culture, which makes me wonder if, it, if it's that background where you've got, if you're a former founder, you're just comfortable with that risk of investing at that stage. Whereas you're a money manager, you're, I mean, certainly I, I'm a former quoted equity manager and my first thought is, okay, portfolio diversification, spreading your risk, th- those sort of things. Do you think those two are related? Yeah, I do. Absolutely they are. I mean, I think it's interesting that as an equities manager, you know, looking at risk and all the rest of it, if you look at a perfect system, I'll start with that, mm-hmm. a perfect system, would encourage and reward through the availability of capital the most promising entrepreneurs in the country right it would mm-hmm. do that because you know that's the engine of growth of, of job security and it feeds into our education system and empowering our kids and making them feel they can achieve anything so it's, it's critical so if you if you wanted to start with that as a principle you'd say why don't you change the pension regulations such that the pension laws require a percentage of capital put into pensions to go into higher risk startups it doesn't have to be a particularly big one but at the moment it's virtually zero yeah i have heard the suggestion that if you just did one percent that would transform the yeah. industry and that's yeah. probably right so yvonne kushnard at patagonia years ago set up a, a charity called one percent for the planet mm-hmm. and we've got a charity that we run called 10 percent for the ocean which is very similar, but it's for the ocean, not the planet. But mm-hmm. given the ocean is 75% of the planet, it's <laughs> basically <laughs> But I think, yeah, if, if there was a mantra that said 1% for the startups, 
you know, that would be an absolute game changer in terms of availability of funding and the, and the ability to to get you know great new technologies off the ground. So you know, my my hope would be that in a perfect world, the UK uh, was was placed right at the forefront of innovation and and tech change over the next decade. And I think you know we've made EIS is a great place, you know, great start. It's been difficult with COVID for for lots of different fund managers and stuff like that. But it's it's a great place to start. But it's in the scheme of things, it's a relatively small number. Can only support probably 500 businesses, maybe a thousand businesses a year at scale at least. And imagine if you could game change that number and you could 10x it. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of brilliant people inside companies today that if they felt they had the opportunity to set out on their own, mm-hmm. would would massively accelerate the development of some of the technologies that sort of locked up in in institutions and universities and things like that. So it'd be great to do that. It'd be hugely exciting. You know, if we if we got it right over the next 10 years, it would be just wonderful to watch. Yes, I think there's a, a nice letter to, letter to Rishi coming for, for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we'll have to we'll have to bombard him with some I'll circulate an email to all your all your listeners. Yes. And to yes. join our hobby. We'll we, yes, we'll happily circulate that. So when you were an entrepreneur, at what point did you start think about becoming an investor in other businesses or a fund manager? And why did that happen? In the early years, when I was sort of building out these things, I was always asked by other entrepreneurs, you know, generally who were maybe a little bit younger than me, you know, always asked for advice and quite often asked, you know, if I would help or if I would give them some money or whatever. So I started investing in in companies very shortly after my first exit with the trucks that we were building, you know, and I never really stopped. And I wasn't, you know, when when we sold PlayJam, we sold PlayJam really well, and that was the first time I think where, you know, I felt pretty invincible after that, to mm-hmm. be honest, because I had had lots of successes, and we built this massive platform, sold it to this big nasdaq listed company in the states made you know a lot of money and yeah like a lot of people that sell businesses you know it's the happiest and the worst day of your life because you've lost your baby but your bank you know your bank accounts full. but yeah you know what happens in those events is you get bombarded by wealth managers and banks and you get bombarded by people looking for money and you know, you sort of let you're you become a bit like Spider Man, you know, shooting money. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I went through a period, as I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, of of complete chaos, where you know we were just investing lots of money without doing much DD, and some of those actually worked out to be some of the best investments we had made. Some of them, on the other hand, didn't didn't come to much at all. And I think that's when I really started honing my skills as a professional investor using my own balance sheet and you know initially probably the advice i was giving entrepreneurs wasn't wasn't great because it was i was too emotional about the businesses or something like that mm-hmm. but over time i think it, we became so structured you know and we, we formed investment processes and how we would a- approach different sectors and we started building a network of advisors and entrepreneurs that we would work with we started pooling our capital together and working as teams so this is before the formation of Vala. So we spent 15 years really crafting 
our process and and doing work. Yeah, and that transition, you know, like all these transitions, was wonderful in many respects. Learning a new trade and and getting to meet, uh, you know, a huge volume of people. But it was only when we set Vala up that you know we made a very conscious decision to sort of separate our own investments from those that Vala would, you know, Vala was going to make and put in put in place, you know, all of the infrastructure that a that a major VC would make or would require rather. And that's been a really interesting process of, you know, you set the you set the bar quite high. So as I said, you know, our objective is to build a major European VC. You know, recognize that's gonna take somewhere in the region 10 to 15 years to do. So any project that we look at, we tend to look at with a long, long window. Yeah, which I think is necessary in this industry. And probably, as you say, people, some people struggle with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as a VC now, you've got to look at a blend of products. So you've got to have debt products. You've got to have, you know, tax efficient equity product, but you've also got to have institutional equity because mm-hmm. you can't get enough flexibility with any single product to be able to do the breadth of deals that you need to be able to do. I think the VC space is changing massively and it's about just making sure you've got enough depth of product to be able to pick out the best deals. Because at the end of the day, you know, VC gets selected. If you're a great entrepreneur, you you choose your VC. It's not mm-hmm. the other way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So getting the right entrepreneurs on board is really is really about offering them the very best service that you can and as i sort of touched on earlier i think that a lot of that is about emotional support and empathy and then practical support such as corporate structuring tax maybe things like r d all those sorts you know r d claims all those sorts of things corporate finance advice but then underneath that it's like well what are your sources of capital so if we need a lot more quickly do you have a debt fund, you know, or can you do equity beyond the confines of EIS and things like that? So my aim is to build Vala into a sort of, you know, a multi-asset VC that's, that's got the, the firepower to be able to work with an entrepreneur all the way through their cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas EIS is, is fantastic, but it tends to be aimed at seed and series A yeah. rather than sort of later stage. Yeah, you don't get the scale of funding so easily. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you touched there on emotional support and I saw a blog post from you, well, I can't remember if it's you, you personally or Vala, about effectively about mental health in this, in this mm. industry. Mm. And it's clearly been a tough time in particular of the last year. I was wondering how, do, do you feel that the mental health issues of perhaps underestimate a little bit because we have this idea of the strong founder who's always, you know, throwing off every challenge and whatever, but it's not quite that easy, I think. Yeah, it's a total fallacy, isn't it? That, you know, we're all human beings and we're all very frail, fragile, emotional um, messes um, for the (laughs) last time. I am. You know, I often... Yeah, and we should be proud to be that, you know. And I, you know, I often think of myself as a child in a playground, and you know how vulnerable I felt, and and try and imagine us all as kids, right? Uh-huh. You know, in the playground, how who would you be? Who would I be? How would we be? And all those sorts of things. And I think a childlike mentality, when you look at our emotive state, is a is a really powerful way of looking at it. And so, with our companies, 
and the founders we back we don't look at the it's not about the company you know it's at the end of the day it's about the individual and the people and going back to the play playground how would we all play uh-huh. would would i be the guy sat on the bench that no one wants to hang out with probably <laughs> or, or uh, you know would we all be playing football together and so a lot of it is how do you interact with people you know i think the whole mental health issues set aside covid for a minute a minute i think the mental health of founders is perhaps the strongest investment thesis that you can create because uh-huh. if your founder is your engine you've got to make sure that they're fueled properly and that they you know they have the right counseling around them and the right support you know i was reading um recently something that we've been looking at vala which is what is that total support package and if you could put in place for your founders dietary advice fitness advice mental health advice you could help them create a pattern of of being that was health optimized i think that'd be a really powerful thing for a vc to do and there aren't many examples of it happening at the moment there's a company in germany that's been looking at it the next stage to me of vcs is really about just really optimizing that relationship between ourselves and the and, and the founder and giving that founder the tools to optimize himself but also people within his within his organization quite often in a in a vc founder relationship traditionally every board meeting is a sales pitch because it has to be and all the confrontation is you know you try and avoid confrontation and all the rest of it but there's there's quite often not much honesty between a founder and a vc uh-huh. so the founder won't really disclose his his hidden fears because he's worried that close the taps and in in the uk mental he- addressing mental health publicly or or even you know privately is is it's still almost a taboo i think yeah I, I i totally agree you know anything that can be done to support you know and promote better mental health you know is, is something that we're striving to you know achieve and and, and help with but you know covid's a really good example of where you had a small business, you had a bunch of people, they would come into a premises and you were all working around a Kanban or a whiteboard to develop a product. Take all that away. Actually, the community's gone, the hierarchy's gone, ease of management has gone. Zoom calls are hugely fatiguing for people. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's like the the mental health elements have been sort of hugely exacerbated over the last sort of you know, year or so, you know, putting in place these mitigation strategies around behavioral psychologists and things like that, and I think has been really powerful for them. And it's quite interesting. We did this session where we brought together a lot of the company, a lot of the sort of senior management teams of the companies. And we worked with a a really cool company called CHX, who basically did, you know, behavioral science work. And none of these people had met, but within about 20 minutes, all of them were either engaging or crying or laughing and sharing together how hard it is and you know what their experience has been and how their moods have been changed by different events and and you know how they could you know optimize their emotions and things like that. So I think there's a lot that can be done. One of the sectors that we're looking at at the moment is is all around mental health and trying to put in place tools and systems. That, that can you know try and optimize that excellent something i've heard a couple of u.s coaches talk about jerry colonna i think speaks very well on this 
but it's something that I haven't really heard anybody else in EIS even raise. So I, I'm, I'm really pleased to sort of see you doing that. So You know, life's so short, isn't it? All of it is about your, your attitude to what you're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you can't change the surroundings, but you can probably change your emotional reaction to it. You know, we don't understand our emotions intuitively enough and we're not in tune with our bodies mm-hmm. enough to, to sort of recognize different moods. But actually, if you work with a behavioral psychologist that decodes it for you, you go, oh, OK, yeah, no, I understand why I'm feeling like that or I understand why I'm like that. So it's really it's not I'm saying it's simple. I, I just think the whole industry of investing is about supporting individuals and, and management teams and if you want to optimize their ability to create success, you've got to optimize them and give them the tools to be optimized. Mm-hmm. And, so. yeah. and and at the very least prevent them crashing to uh, quivering <laughs> hulks or whatever, yeah, or, or getting depression, which is all too easy when things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you can't pay people because you've run out of money and, and you've got no one to talk to, running a company can be a pretty lonely spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to see you're addressing that. What I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at you and give us your quick thoughts. What was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why? So publicly announced, we've made a couple this week, actually, or or one in particular this week that I'm really proud of, but I don't think I'm allowed to tell you who that is. But I think that that, that's a really exciting one for us. And the one before that was into Good Club. And Good Club is a basically a dry, a sustainable dry goods supplier built by a really powerful management team. So you basically become a subscriber. All the dry goods that you might order, you know, washing powders through to other products and things like that, are delivered straight to your door, all from completely sustainable sources. It's growing really quickly. It's a great business. Love the management team. Everyone in Vala to a man was like, this is this is a really really wonderful business to be involved in. So, so we yeah we did that deal, and that's part really of a of a transition for a lot of the deals that we're doing towards sustainability and transition tech and things like that. So it's a big theme for us. A lot of the deals that you'll see us do over the next year are on a path towards sustainability. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So I think you've kind of answered this already, but in the classic. VC triumvirate of market product or management, which do you think is the ranks the highest? Management, 100%. Founder first, always. Yes. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I thought. A great product and a terrible manager is not going anywhere. So we've spoken a lot about the successes you had. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Oh, God. I've had so many failures and probably the most spectacular one was with a few other people, I built a business called Electra, an Electra Entertainment PLC, which sounds like a porn company, but it's not. <laughs> it was uh, a tech business that was building middleware systems for, oddly enough, for TVs. And it built an interactive middleware OS, and it got ranged into lots of small OEM TVs. Tesco's put it in all their devices. And we were like, this thing's going to fly. And we had sunk about seven million into it so far. But by that point, yeah, we lost a lot of money on it. I mean, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we got out, but we didn't get a good, you know, a good return. And I think what we learned from that was that it's a bit like the Betamax VHS argument. Uh-huh. You know? 
what won in the end was a really awful system that did you know probably two percent of what our system could do but the difference was that their system was free we just couldn't provide ours on, on a free of charge basis so you know we over engineered it and i think there's a lot to be said for quick and dirty get a product out try it see how it goes call it quits if uh, if it doesn't like you can, you know, you can win. Yeah. So the industry that we work in, the EIS or VCT interest is far from perfect. What would you change about it? Good question. So I, I think I'd do two things. I would, as the government, I would promote EIS far more at a retail level. At the moment, it's a sort of an advised, pro- you know, it's an advised product. But I would make as part of a recovery process for the UK SME sector, I'd really promote EIS and, and sort of make sure that far wider community of potential investors was aware of it. The second thing I would do is condition EIS on transition outcomes, on sustainability. So I think I would, you know, you look at the next decade, we've got a huge amount to achieve. We've got phenomenal problems with climate change. So give EIS a purpose. You know, let's let's make it a purpose-led initiative to to help with that transition. The third thing I'd do is probably level up some of the tax breaks. So I obviously altering tax structures is quite difficult, but what I might do is increase the tax breaks. So I'd level it between SEIS and EIS up to say up to say the first million, and then maybe lower it down to thirty percent where it is above a million. But I think what what we're looking for is a a rapid injection of capital into startups. And I would use, I'd, I'd control the tax system to sort of, uh, or the tax breaks on it to try and really motivate and stimulate um, much more investment in, in early stage. Yeah, I know that, the, well, the 150,000 for SEIS hasn't been changed now for almost a decade. And yeah. it's part yeah. of the EIS Association's lobbying of uh, for this year's budget is they want that limit upped. Um, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of work with ESA, and you know, there's lots of other more detailed recommendations in in their reports. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think that would be good. But the tra- the transition bit, I think, is a really interesting opportunity. And it's not that you want to exclude lots of other companies. If you gave EIS a purpose, you'd get a lot more retail appetite. Into yeah. It. I mean, I mean, they've done that for knowledge intensive. So something along those lines for sustainability would almost seem a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So lockdown's been wonderful for my reading. Um, no, I got over fifty books read last year. Um, so, <laughs> is there anything you, that you like and would recommend to people? I love sailing and climbing. You know, I like to go to bed with a good, you know, a good disaster story. Mm-hmm where they've had a worse day than I have. <laughs> There's a book called Touching the Void, which I'm sure is a very old book. Lots of people have oh, read it. Oh, that is one of the two books I picked up read and didn't finish until like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I, I already knew the story. I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> and I still had to stay up to two o'clock to read this. <laughs> I just think, you know, Jay Simpson crawling across that glacier you're just like it's as you said it's so gripping it's so extraordinary that's a a wonderful book and then uh i was recently reading a book called courage at sea which is a compendium of different stories which has got you know a whole catalog of which i think naomi james wrote it 
you know, it's got the story of the Robinsons who were sailing off the coast of Galapagos on a world tour with their kids after selling their farm. And their small, I think, 40, 38 foot sailing yacht gets attacked by killer whales, sinks in 30 seconds. And they spend 68 days in a raft and 68 days in a raft in the Pacific after being, you know, they ship after ship goes past but doesn't see them. The emotional roller coaster of being in a sodden, food-deprived, water-deprived state. Just, just the story is just mind-boggling. You know, she's also got lots of other great stories, like what happened in the fast net. You know, there was that catastrophic fast net race many years ago. I can't remember what the year was, 78, I think. But I love, you know, short stories. Uh, so that's a really great one. There's a periodical called Mariner's Quarterly, and that's fantastic. So that has all these little sort of stories of things at sea. So, and I love love going to bed, reading about the wilderness, great challenges, big storms, being out in the middle of the ocean, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I've read a lot of climbing stories, but the ocean's kind of new to me. So uh, I'll probably have to pick that up and see what it says. Yeah, yeah. There's some great ones. I'll send you a list of a couple of others as well. Okay. Well, we'll put them in the show notes. Uh, so <laughs> listeners can find them easily. What do you wish you knew when you started Valor that you know now? The main thing is that the the industry is it's quite a small industry that's controlled actually through a, a very few number of levers, which are the large wealth managers, you know, the SJPs, Barclays and things like that. And as any new fund manager knows, it's it's extremely difficult to get on panel on those on those services. And unless you're on panel, you're ability to raise capital is significantly curtailed and what i know now you know i wish i knew then was that you know the people who run them are great but the 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 organizations themselves have no incentive or particular desire to take on a wider range of products because uh, eis products because i think eis products are seen as as you know inherently risky and all the rest of it so and I think there's a real challenge there in the industry, which is what you tend to do is have two or three or five maybe that are ranged in a panel and then hundreds that aren't. Uh-huh. And you could argue that it's only the best that get to the top, but the best in almost all cases are the ones that have just been around the longest. You know, it's not always based on track record or all these things. It's, it's, it's based on presence in the market and things like that. You know, what I would love is that the panels and the big institutions had a more all of market view of the opportunities that the EIS managers are bringing to bear. And I think that's beginning to happen. I just think it's a it's like all these things, a bit glacial. And it's hard for a, a big wealth manager to do the DD and go through the process of bringing multiple products onto a panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then they're persuading the individual sales person that they've got to learn about 10 products rather than five uh, for something yeah. that they're not, a lot of them aren't necessarily selling regularly. I think that's the, that's the big challenge for them. I agree. It's a challenge that you see in other industries as well. I'll, I'll come on to one in a sec. But at the end of the day, the availability of capital into SMEs should be, and hopefully is, an absolute priority for the British economy. The source of that capital as it relates to EIS is the big wealth managers. And one would hope that there is a 
a wider range of products that's made available. And I'm going to touch on something else, which I think is potentially a solution. So obviously, I'm fairly passionate about the oceans and have a lot of lot of investments in ocean-based activities. And we set up a foundation or a charity called 10% for the Ocean. Uh-huh. And the reason for that is that currently only 1% or less than 1% of all philanthropic funding in the world goes to ocean-related causes. Yet the ocean is every second breath we take, 80% of the food and protein that we consume. We've only discovered 7% or 8% rather of the, of the species that live in the ocean. There's an ecosystem that covers 75% of the planet's surface. It's extraordinary that it gets less than 1% of philanthropic funding, given that all life on Earth is dependent on it. So 10% for the ocean was a bid to try and move that 1% to 10% over the ocean decade. We set it up as a fund of funds. And the reason for doing that was that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of small ocean-based charities around the world, all of whom are doing great work, but all of them have very small share of voice. So it's very hard for them to sort of get on panel, if mm-hmm. you like. Yeah. Uh, and so our approach was to create this super fund for the ocean called 10% that banks, wealth managers, large corporates, et cetera, can join on the basis that the money then flows through to a whole you know, smorgasbord of different causes and, and, and projects around the world. So it's basically like a global ocean index of conservation products. And I think there's something in that idea of, a fund of fund product for EIS so that it makes it far easier for the larger wealth managers. So they're not having to sort of say it's this guy or this woman and it's this fund manager and this is their strategy and this is this one, but saying we want a certain exposure to EIS and we want to play all of the market. And I think that would be a, a much better route of doing it and probably far less risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get the enhanced diversification that would bring, that would make things a lot better for investors and and coming back to your point earlier might make it more retail acceptable yeah if there was an index if you could basically invest and you were getting exposure to several hundred uk startups that would be amazing right and at the moment you know each fund's probably doing five to ten deals and there's a year and the big wealth managers might have five funds on their panel so you're getting 25 deals a year uh, if you did money into all of them but if you could put a 100 in the top and it went into hundreds actually that's a far far more exciting product mm-hmm. yeah well there's another great idea so um <laughs> we've taken plenty of time today jasper so thank you very much for coming on if anyone wants to find more about vala where should they go valacap.com is a good good destination or my email is jasper at valacap.com anyone's welcome to ping me an email yeah but valacap.com has got you know, lots of detail about the sustainability products we've got eis products and, and some of the other things we're working on excellent so we'll put that in the show notes as usual so thank you very much jasper that's been a great chat thank you so much brian really lovely to be here and lovely to see you again thank you so we hope you enjoyed that if you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.